Welcome to the second series of the Commit podcast with me, Enda McNulty of McNulty Performance, Ireland's leading performance company. During this series, I'm focusing on peak performance, finding out what it takes to perform at the highest level in the most pressurized situations from business to sport, medicine and aviation. This week, I speak to Brian Bell, a man who knows a lot about endurance, resilience and the challenges that you're likely to face in extreme racing. Not content with the ordinary marathons or the easy triathlons, Brian has competed in some of the toughest physical challenges on the planet, from the Yukon in the Arctic to the Amazon jungle. Find out what it's like to prepare for and compete through a 230 kilometer of jungle race. That's right, 230 kilometers of jungle race. Or running in temperatures of minus 50 degrees Celsius. This is Brian Bell on peak performance. I would have always had a passion for sports and competition. I was competing in triathlons in the late 80s and into the 90s and then I veered off into a bit of climbing. Uh, I was the Himalayas, the Andes, the Alps. Then I got married and had to uh, settle down for a couple of years. But the passion was and the, the adventure was still within me. So then I found a, a way with ultra running to combine mountains with competition. Um, so I, I then eased myself into ultra trail running. Before we get into that, tell us a little bit about your occupation, about the day job, about the normal life you have before we get into the extraordinary life you have. Yeah, well, I'm a retired guard um, now, but uh, myself and my wife, we, we have a family business. Um, we own and operate uh, six childcare facilities in the northeast of Ireland. How many of a staff do you have? Uh, we currently have about 65 staff. And so it's a big business. Um, there is a lot of work to be done, as with, as you would know, when it's your own business, it's a 24-7 operation. But I suppose in a way, uh, everybody needs to get some sort of outlet from potential pressure like that. And for me, my outlet is a little bit different to most. Um, I always revert back to, to what I feel most comfortable doing. If some guys is playing golf or, um, or fly fishing. But for me, it is finding new places in the world, new environments, um, meeting new people and just experiencing something rather than watching Attenborough on TV or Netflix. It's just to, to live it. It's, it's, it's feasible in this modern day to go to places that when I was young in Wexford were like crazy faraway places. Like I would remember my dad talking about um, and Stalin sending guys to the gulags in Siberia. So I've always gone, wow, if the Russians thought Siberia was rough, it must be rough. I've so, always been amazed and fascinated by adventure. And I think it comes from at an early stage in my life, reading about Ernest Shackleton, hmm. reading about Scott, reading about people like Tom Crean. But for me, you're like like almost a modern day Shackleton brand. You're you're going off around the world to explore places that nobody in their wildest dreams would have the chance to explore. Never mind to race in. So, can you give our listeners an indication or maybe an insight into the places you've been to, and more than anything else, what that experience does for you? The answer for that is I don't see it as extreme. I, I see it as 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 a, a passion I have. So if I thought it was extreme, I'd, it probably would be dangerous. I view it as something I'm good at. I'm comfortable, very comfortable in these environments. I, You're I comfortable at minus 50. How could you be comfortable at minus 50? Well, there was moments I, I uh, was just wondering how far, how cold can it get? 
Um, and I think it topped out that year at minus 53. How do you cope with minus 53 mentally and emotionally, Bran? Mentally, you have prepared very well. You have considered all of the things that could go wrong and will go wrong. You expect um, things to go wrong. So when things amazingly go wrong, it's not that big a shock. It is a release in a lot of ways knowing you are self-sufficient. So you can't abdicate responsibility to anybody else. I think in the modern world, I think there's a lot of abdication of, well, that was your fault or you should have done this or whatever. Um, if you're up there, minus 50, it's your baby. There was a, an instance in the Yukon where I passed out on a river. This was not one of the things I'd considered going wrong. I considered going through ice and I considered bear attacks and I'd considered bad frostbite. Hold on a second. Bear attacks? Yes. From What do you mean? Well, just up there, uh, if you see a bear in February in Yukon, you're in trouble because he should be asleep. And the only, there's only one reason he's awake, and that's because he's hungry. Can't outrun them, and you can't outclimb them, so you just have to outstare them, really. As it happened, <laughs> as it happened I, didn't, I saw bear tracks, um, and coincidentally, when I came back home to Ireland, I was able to look at my average speeds per stage. And I know where I saw the bear prints and you can actually see a spike in my speed, which shows that my brain was working <laughs> at that stage. But I didn't see, I saw a lot of wolves. I had wolves track me for two days. I was on my own and I had wolves tracking me for two days. And in the Yukon that time of year, it's dark for about 18, 19 hours. So when you're scanning in the, in the, on the tree line, you can see the eyes from the wolves staring back at you. They're just watching and hoping, really, more than anything. But bears were the big thing to look out for. But thankfully, I didn't see any bears up in the Yukon. But how do you... You mentioned earlier on, uh, before we started to record, Bran, you mentioned about shopping on Grafton Street just before <laughs> Dublin. Yeah, that so, is stressful. So the contrast between shopping on Grafton Street the week before Christmas versus being in the Yukon, being chased down by a bear. How do you possibly deal with the major gulf and contrast between those extremes? Well, I just try to deal with Grafton Street as best I can. And, uh, you know, <laughs> that's the most difficult environment for me. If I, wherever I, I go, if I'm in in the jungle or the Amazon or um, in the Sahara, wherever it would be, you embrace the nature, you embrace everything that it has. And what were you doing in the Amazon? The Amazon was a race called the Jungle Ultra. So it was in the uh, Peru side of the Amazon and it was a 230k multi-stage, totally self-sufficient race through the primary jungle. Let me get this straight. 230k. Yes. How many days? Six stages, six race stages. Um, The final stage was the long day, which was an 80k single stage, which unfortunately at the start of that, I fell and broke my wrist. So I had to do the whole of that stage through the the jungle with one arm and two good legs. And subsequently, um, when I returned to Ireland, I became ill and spent about a week in Beaumont where they told me I had got malaria. But touch wood, we, we have made a full recovery since. And in terms of, you know, the difficulty and the challenge you met in the jungle, what was that like? What, what were the big challenges you're encountering on an ongoing basis, apart yeah. from the obvious? Of all the environments I've raced in, the, the jungle was one I personally found the most difficult. Um, some guys love the jungles. Some guys can't cope with cold. Um, but for me, the jungle is, is a nasty, nasty place. Everything seems to want to bite you or spike you or hurt you or inflict damage on you. There's nothing that... <laughs> 
there's nothing that doesn't want to. And I don't want to put people off by saying what I think, but nonetheless, I'll say what I think. Um, I can't really remember any stage in the race where I would have looked up because essentially we were, we're climbing and descending forests, crossing rivers to climb up again and down. But I can't remember any actual occasion where I stopped and looked around and thought, this is beautiful. I, every time I just stopped, I thought, I won't say what I thought, but I just thought, oh, jeez, is there no end to this? Um, and why did you do it? Because the challenge is there. In, in the anorak world of ultra running, the extreme end of it, there are four environments you, you have to test yourself in. Hot, which is Sahara-type desert. Cold, or the Yukon um, races similar to that. Um, altitude, which is the Himalayas. And jungle, which is the only jungle in town, really, is the Amazon. So you have to do it to... to it was one I didn't want to do, but it was niggling at me. It was like the schoolyard bully. You could see him laughing at you for a couple of days in the schoolyard and you just eventually have to take him on. So that's what happened. I got through it. I did well. I topped 10 in that race. A lot of good runners in it, a lot of uh, younger runners in it. Um, but the one thing you find in multi-stage racing and the more difficult the environment the more important experience becomes. So it kind of levels at the playing field. So you could have a guy maybe 30 years of age um, with some experience, maybe a lot of experience of a particular type of running or racing, but you put a guy like that into a really extreme environment and after two or three days, four days, five days, you see that they sort of crack a little bit, some of them, some don't. But some do. And I think very often all walks of life, and one of the things we're conversing in regard to this podcast is about the different performance crucibles, whether it's business or sport or adventure or, let's say, you know, looking at things differently from a military point of view and so on. But very often it's underestimated the importance of experience. Mm. So we look at the bigger, faster, stronger woman or the bigger, faster, stronger man. Unfortunately, we never really appreciate experience and how valuable that is. What's your thoughts on that, Brian? Well, I suppose, uh, alluding to what I said to you at the start, I would have grown up very competitively playing sport and always wanted to beat my brothers. And as with all of us, as you get older, you cannot compete to the same level at the sports you used to play at. And for me at this stage, it is the longer, the tougher, the more extreme the race, the better chance I have of being a competitive athlete within that race. You mentioned at the top of this podcast about being a normal person and you don't yeah. believe this is about extremes, but that's not normal. That's, that's absolutely uh, abnormal. Well, I suppose it is if you if you uh, turn up in the Yukon in a pair of O'Neill's shorts and socks and your county jersey on looking to pull a sled for 500k. That's extreme. I accept that. But you, it's like anything else in life. You don't just rock up. You, you, you gradually are incrementally building towards something. And my view has always been I don't have I would have certain goals, certain races I would like to go places I would like to go to. I don't have any massive end game in mind. I'm just um, embracing the adventures that comes to me. I this, this time last year, Brian, I think I got a phone call from you and you were saying that when your family were sitting at home on the sofa with a fire lit, looking at beautiful Christmas movies, <laughs> that you decided to head up into the mountains and the more difficult the weather was, the more you enjoyed getting up into the mountains to stay overnight to prepare yourself for the Antarctic 
let's say, tests and trials that lay ahead. Is that right? Or was I well, dreaming or was that no, accurate? No, no, you weren't, unfortunately. And um, that does sound a bit extreme, okay? But in my defense, the, the thought process there was I had a race coming up shortly afterwards um, and that could have been preparation for the Yukon or for Greenland, some of those types of races. And you need to be able to um, self-motivate. You need to be able to, you're, like I said earlier, you're on your own. They tell you in the Yukon, anything below minus 40, there's nobody coming out to you. You are 100% on your own. So you need to be self reliant and you need to be able to self motivate. So it you doesn't need... help you go up in the middle of the mountains at Christmas time, Brandon. Well, for, from that end of it, um, my thought process there was the, the most comfortable and easiest thing to do was to sit in, and I would have enjoyed sitting in, but it seemed in my mind if I can push myself out the door on Christmas night when everybody else has had their drinks and they're gone home at about 11 p.m., if I can load up the kit and head out for the hills and camp up on the night in the mountains, that is, I'm, I'm making a statement to myself. You know? I'm intrigued by your psychology, Bran. I'm intrigued by the psychology of leaving your sofa on a Christmas night to spend all night away from your family and friends in the free Doesn't sound night. good. I, God, anybody, just stop me. You make me I'm, feel I'm, bad here. I'm, I'm intrigued by the psychology. <laughs> but not only, you know, obviously in training in Steve Foyle in the Cooley Mountains on Christmas night, but more importantly, when you move then in towards the Alps or you move in towards the Yukon or you move in towards, as you said earlier on, into the middle of the jungle. Yeah. What does your psychology need to be like in preparation and training? And how much connection has that to your psychology when you're on a 21-day race? With regards to the races, it's quite simple. You're, you're prep you have to give everything you can do in preparation. Being from Ireland and living in Loud, we're a bit lacking in high-altitude mountains and minus 50 temperatures and, and such like. So all you do is the best you can do in your training. You prepare the best you can. So you could be up in the Cooley Mountains or we could, I would pull the my tire up to the top of sleeve downward and down. I do, would do laps of that, preparing myself for big pulls. Hold on a second. You pull a tire? Yes, I pull Ex my... Explain my, what you mean by that. My best friend this time of the year. I would, I would replicate pulling a sled or a, a pulk, as we would call them. So my thinking on that is quite simple in that there's things I can train for in Ireland and things I cannot train for. So my rule of thumb is the fitter you are the better you can cope with whatever the environment it is and if I am that well trained pulling a tire when I get to the Yukon or Greenland or some such challenging environment some people would their training would not have factored in pulling tires and they feel the pulk weighing them literally weighing them down as the race goes on after day after day after day after day whereas I will get there I don't even notice the pulk so I can focus on the things I cannot train for an Ireland, which is body management, i.e. frostbite, um, identifying uh, tracks, looking out for bear tracks, wolf tracks, what we would call overflow on a river or a lake, which is at the edges. looks like it's frozen, but it's very thin and you can go through and you're obviously in bother then. So essentially pulling the tire at home gives me the strength physically and mentally to identify the, the very specific challenges to cold weather racing. And I know that in the past, Brian, we've had you speaking to some of our clients on our behalf, Microsoft, Norbrook, yeah. organizations like AAB and so on. And one of the things I asked you to speak to people in the corporate world about was 
the application of what you've learned about in adventure racing into everyday life. And how somebody who is, let's say, a housewife or how somebody is a young mother of four kids in a very pressurized job in the corporate environment can learn from you in your adventure environment. What would your thoughts be on that? Well, I suppose my thoughts on it would be that if I can do this, anybody can do anything that they really want to do. And I think that's the, the key thing is how bad do you want to do something? You could get a, a man or a woman that they're planning to do their first 5K run, park run, you know, in two or three weeks after they've enjoyed it, you know, in the new year. Um, so that's the same as something I would. Everything is relative. So if you're passionate and you really want something, and um, I think uh, some people in Ireland are afraid to dream and they're afraid maybe to express what their dream is they're maybe afraid of being knocked down or being ridiculed or something but i think if you're passionate enough about something you you'll put it out there we touched on mental toughness earlier brian in the context of experience and again i can remember you saying to me i think it was on an email or a text on one of the adventure races that you were on sometimes we get a text in the middle of the night and you'd say and uh, just got to the end of the 10th day mm-hmm. i'm knackered here i'm exhausted but i'm still strong and, and i'm amazingly inspired by those text messages or sometimes it's an email message and one of the things that i picked up on was the mental toughness your mental toughness is extremely strong i would identify it as being probably one of my stronger points um i don't know on the scale of one to ten how strong it is but it is one of my stronger points in the extreme racing i'm not here as i say i'm not here for a long time i'm here for a good time you know that old saying so i would be believe strongly in that you're here you you have um responsibility to i would feel i have a responsibility to my father uh responsibility to my family to represent them as well as i can i have a responsibility to myself it's not something i'm aware of mental toughness i just would have a job to do and i'll do the job the lowest moments brian there must have been a lot of low moments along the way it can't be all about winning third place or winning 10th place and so on well there's always low moments but should uh, you know we, that's life for everybody it's, it's not a, it's not um something we monopolize and, and going to extreme environments everybody has low moments everybody's high moments and i suppose as you get a bit older you become more experienced if you're going through a bad patch you know there's a good patch coming down the line the downside is after that good patch is probably another bad patch you know Low moments come, but I What's think... What's the lowest moment you've had? The lowest moment um, would possibly, whilst it wasn't the most dangerous moment, would have been probably in the jungle when I fell at the start of the race of the final stage and I was trying to um, protect my top 10 place and there was going to be a few challenges that day and I got a right tumble and I have to say, I, I did my wrist and I split up my knee. There was guys passing me who I was aware of their positions and you had about three hours to get to a checkpoint um and i just had to think why do i have to keep doing this why have i put myself in this position again but so as experience tells you you just need to suck it up for a while break it down i think it was about 20k to the first checkpoint so i would just break it i broke it down into like 2k slots and say, right, just get 2K and reassess, get 2K, reassess. And what was going on in your head? What was your self-talk like during that phase where you are breaking it down? So I was battling with myself. Um, part of me was trying to tell me that I couldn't possibly do an 80K race through the Amazon that day. Like It was almost like a, a standalone. And this was the last stage. So there was a bit of 
collateral damage already during the week we spent in the jungle. And part of me would have been saying, you can't do this. But another part of me saying, yes, I can do this. So How do you win that battle, Brian? How do you win the battle between the voice that says you can't do this, stop, you've got a broken arm, you're exhausted, you're badly, obviously really, really badly fatigued, maybe dehydrated. Yeah. And the other voice that says, you know, keep on going, keep enduring. I suppose you have to remember where you came from, eh? where you came from, you know. My dad would have battled, and so I'll battle. It's, it's not complicated to me. Um, it's what I do. Um, don't ask me to assemble IKEA flat pack furniture. I could do serious damage to myself. My wife wouldn't <laughs> let me near it. But put me anywhere in the world like that, and I'll do it. Only yesterday to my wife, I was talking about a forthcoming race in Siberia. The expected temperature is to be minus 30, 40, that type of temperature in the winter. That for me to podium finish in that race, I would need a really bad, real exceptionally difficult weather. And what will your training routine look like in advance of Siberia? It has commenced. Uh, I did a race, local fun run at the weekend in Carlingford, um, a 10k mountain run. But I traditionally do it every year, pulling the tire. So that did you do it this year, pulling the tire? Yeah, I did. So you'd done a 10k run, pulling the tire behind you up the Cooley Mountains. Yeah, but that's just. I, How long did that take you? I don't know. I, I wouldn't time, but I I I won't mention any names. But I, I actually beat a friend of mine this year who obviously didn't have a tire for the first time. That would be part of my prep. So I get Christmas out of the way. I, as I say, I'm only back about three weeks from the Himalayas. So colder races are very dangerous, potentially very dangerous races. So the one thing I know is you need to be mentally fresh. Okay, so you could be super fit but if you're mentally tired it's a dangerous place to be because if you're tired you'll take the lazy option and you'll make a mistake and there's no second chances so I, I will deliberately just kind of um, I'm just kind of doing 10 20k runs at the minute just to chill out a bit really to go to a race like Siberia or the Yukon or Greenland any of these places you need to be absolutely overwhelmed with um, excitement and fear and it's that combination of trepidation and excitement. I find that an interesting conversation about the right equilibrium. Yeah. In other words, being mentally, physically, almost emotionally fresh. Yes. I remember years ago, Brian Cody speaking to an audience about that, about how he placed so much emphasis on the team being fresh yeah. in that week before the Ireland final. And unfortunately, as a footballer, I would have got that wrong. I would have been <laughs> stale the week before the yeah. Ireland final because I was doing too much. What do you use to keep yourself fresh? How do you monitor that, Brian? Well, I've seen it. I've seen it in races. Guy, good runners come in and they would have done their best training. Their best running would have been three weeks before the race. I've seen that happen. Almost it happened to me once. You have to have the passion. If you don't have the passion, what are you doing there? It makes no sense. And as I've said earlier, if you're in the colder races, if you are not passionate and excited, it is very dangerous. So... If you have the passion and you're really excited, you're buzzing, you're fresh, you're on top of everything, you're watching your sled, you're counting your calories, you're processing um, your stops, you're checking for your toes, fingers, um, you're checking on your salt intake. Everything is easy because you're happy and just delighted to be there. Whereas if you go up and you're, you're feeling you're just overcooked, you're just 
you know, you might be okay for a few days, but it'll find you. But how do you integrate all that training, Brian, like in terms of your, your life as a businessman, your life as a husband, as a father, as a son, as a friend? Mm. How do you possibly balance or integrate your training and your preparation and your racing with all the other important roles in your life? Yeah, well, the, the obvious answer is a bit difficulty. <laughs> uh, I, I, I don't have, I wouldn't be massively strict I wouldn't have be one of these guys with a seven, eight, ten, twelve week fitness plan. It's just kind of an organic thing for me. The closer a race becomes, I don't even notice it. I know my wife and kids would often joke with me that like a week or two before a race, they would say, you may as well be out there because you're not here. I don't notice that myself. I'm just absolutely gone on preparation and research. And I suppose in a way, it's what makes it easy for me is that I, I do emotionally kind of check out as a race comes I know what I need to do and uh, as the weeks get closer to the race it, it obviously intensifies the Himalayas for example obviously it was climbing 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 trying to get, just get used to the climbing and back up Donard when you're really tired just go turn around and straight back up the direct route and straight back down constantly working on it um, and for the cold races um like with Siberia, we're going to be out on a lake. The advantage to that is it's flat. Okay? The disadvantage is it's very exposed. So when the, the winds come, which they will come, and the winds will be up to 120, 130, 140k an hour coming towards us. We're heading north in the race, and the prevailing winds come from the north, so you're right out there. So you need to be really good at setting up a bivy. It's kind of like a small tent, a very quickly put so up So there's 130k... Winds coming towards you and you're setting up a tent. Yeah, so you need to be become very efficient at putting up a tent in difficult situations. So I know this always gives you a laugh, but I'll wait for a weather warning on RTE News and I'll see it come in um, and I'll head out into it. And to try and replicate the winds and up in Lake Baikal, I'll, if there's a weather warning come, I'll head for the top of Donard up to the very, very top of it, and I'll set up a bivy up there and assemble it and in, in, um, set up camp in the winds. That's very interesting. I remember a, a fireman in New York City using the phrase to me, let adversity be your biggest friend. Yeah. So you, in a way, use adversity to be oh, your absolutely, friend. Absolutely, yeah. So when, you, when you're seeing adversity on the weather warnings, yeah. you run out of the house. Absolutely. Whereas most people <laughs> would do the opposite. So yeah. th that's what I mean by the, the psychology. I'm, I'm fascinated by that psychology. Yeah, well, I suppose it, I'm conscious of what I can and can't prepare for living in, in the environment we have in Ireland so so as my view on it is you, you maximise what you do have we've lots of bad weather so if you can operate in that comfortably so if it's if the forecast is for torrential rain to come in tonight like downpours you just head out and so just, what's left to conquer for you right? like you're on about conquering Donald and let's say conquering some of the mountains in the Himalayas but what's left to conquer for you what's the next series of things you want to <laughs> conquer you know I have to be careful what I say Ears, other people will be listening to this podcast, but there's always dreams. <clears throat> I suppose I've always been dreamt of the Antarctic. I would have grown up reading about McClure and McClintock, obviously Shackle and Amits and Scott, and then obviously Tom Crane, who is should be everybody's idol. So there is there is a part of me that is absolutely fascinated and challenged by the South Pole and the situation that occurred with. Scott's expedition when he turned Crane back critical mistake so I do feel as if there's unfinished business down there um, but maybe in the shorter term I'm open to more 
challenges, different environments. When I look in our hallway at home, we have a, a big map similar to the one you have outside in your office. And I just look up and there's something about Russia that just fascinates me. And the northeast of Russia, um, it's such a vast space. And nobody knows a lot about it. Um, and I would have always, when I was younger, I, I used to read about the Bering Straits between Alaska and Russia. I think it still freezes up sometimes now. And theoretically, you can cross from Alaska to Russia. Obviously, well, it's, it's, it's funny you, you talk about that brand, like in terms of the dreams and aspirations you still have, which is always an inspiration to hear. I wonder if Tom Crane joined us on the <laughs> podcast. I wonder if our listeners were lucky enough to hear Crane's resilient voice. I wonder what message would he have for them in regard to chasing after their dreams? Wow, that would be interesting to hear him. Um, I would imagine, he, from what I've read of him, he wasn't the sort of guy who would have been jumping up and down, shouting out, telling people anything. He, he was the sort of man that just was confident in his own space and what he did. And he didn't need to shout about it too much. He was sort of man that people who would have listened and had the, the, the sense to listen to him would have been in awe of him. It'd be just like it's impossible to make comparisons between what anybody really can do in Ireland now, even in the world of exploration and what he did. Like it's, it's not a fair comparison, but it definitely would be. I tune in for that podcast if you can set that one up. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be a special podcast. So as we draw to a close, Brian, what is the thing you're most proud of as an adventurer, as a racer, as somebody who's an extreme racer? What are you most proud of? I suppose what I'm most proud of is that I'm married to, to the woman I'm married to. I have the kids that I have and I have the life that I have. But yet there's part of me that still um, can successfully go away to these extreme areas and um, experience everything that nature has. The more extreme the environment, the more extreme the rewards are for me um, in Greenland this year. On the final stage of the race, I, I was roped up with three other guys. We were climbing, pulling a sled up a really steep um, glacier. And it was an incredibly beautiful day. The bluest of blue and the whitest of white. And then just to where I left, one of the guys, uh, a Spanish friend of mine, noticed the polar bear, which is not a good thing to see. Because a polar bear will hunt you. Polar bears are one of the few animals in the world will actually track you down to kill you. Um, and he was about 150 meters away. So each of us placed a hand on a rifle, um, with a rifle each. And he stood up on his back legs and you could see him sniffing the air. And he was looking over towards us. And we were, weren't sure whether we should be excited or scared. I think he was more scared first than excited. But he gradually started walking away and stopping and looking back as he headed up a glacier himself. And it's just moments like that, that, that I suppose that's what makes me feel lucky that I experience, actually experience real time situations like that. Or like the, the final stage in the Yukon race where I left a checkpoint in a place called Pelly Farm. There was the people who owned that word, surname was Bradley. So obviously there had to be an Irish connection and... When I came in, he gave me a new ice from Ireland. He gave me some whiskey in my coffee. Um, but I was leaving there at about 11 p.m. to push out on the final stage. The last stage was about was about 60K, um, and it was really, really super cold. And um, there was two teams behind me, two teams of two, and I was on my own. But I wanted to get out before they'd come in to try and break them down mentally. 
And this guy, Dale, was his name. He had a weather station and the information he would supply to the Canadian uh, Met Office. But he was saying to me, uh, you don't got to go out, you know. And I was saying, no, I'm, I'm heading. And he says, hang on. And he came back. He went over and checked the temperature. And he says to me, you ever been at minus 48 before? And I said, no. He says, you're gonna. <laughs> so I thought, oh, geez. So I left out the door and I felt like... Um, like I always think that scene in Gladiator, Russell Crowe coming out thinking, this is it. I am bombproof. Nothing can get me. And within 10 minutes, the temperature hit me. And I thought, oh, geez, what have I done? I keep getting myself into these situations. But within maybe 20 minutes of that, all of the race up to this point, I hadn't really seen good Northern Lights at all. But within 20, 30 minutes at that point, the lights kicked off and as after about two hours, I knew the other teams would have been in and bivied at that checkpoint. So I'm pretty sure that for a couple of hundred miles, for sure, of that area, I was the only human being in that area. And the lights kicked out fully. Um, it was an incredible show of lights. And I could see the wolves. And I stopped. I had a fire going. And I was taking a video of the lights. And on the video, I can hear the wolves howling in the background. And I just stopped and I remember thinking to myself, this could be as good as it ever gets for me. You know, it sounds like a very selfish thing to say. And I don't mean it in that regard. But when you when you love nature as much and the environment as I do, it was an extreme moment. And they're the moments, they're the things that I feel so lucky to have combined with my family. So it's, it's like for me, it's the perfect combination. Brian Bell, what a way to finish the spirit of Ernest Shackleton and Tom Crean lives very strongly. Thank you for joining us on the Commit Podcast. Thanks, Anna. Next week, I speak to another peak performer to get their insights into succeeding at the highest level. So don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Android devices. And until then, why not commit to being your best and why not commit to applying some of these key lessons? I'm Enda McNulty of McNulty Performance. Thank you for listening.